Happy Wednesday, my dear friends. Welcome and welcome back to K9360. I'm KZUM. This is Jill. And I am here with you on Wednesday afternoons talking about dogs, thinking about dogs, living with them, buying them stuff, taking them to the veterinarian. We're all in this together, yes. So where better to have community conversation about dog ownership than right here on our very own community radio station. All right, let's get to it. This uh, this week might end up being this week and next week, and it might end up being this week and next week and even the week after. But let's dig in, see where we get and see where we end, and uh, join me, right, on the journey. So um, once upon a time... There was a language philosopher by the name of Ludwig Wittgenstein who said simply, meaning is use. And although you may know me as a sparkling radio personality, (laughs) I am really at the core um, a teacher. Sometimes I am teaching writing, rhetoric, Sometimes I am teaching my dog the finer points of competitive obedience exercises. Sometimes I am teaching others to train their dogs. And in doing so, teaching families and neighborhoods and communities about the changing role of dogs in our human family and how those changes reflect or influence our ideas about social justice, even participatory democracy, certainly consumerism, and a particular kind of civic responsibility. An introduction to Adam's task, another poet, philosopher, dog trainer named Vicki Hearn writes about her own occupation of these different spaces. And she occupies them differently, even though she occupies them at the same time. She was a university lecturer, a trainer of dogs and horses. We've talked about her a few times here before, as have some of our guests. And from Hearn's unique purview, she observed that philosophers and animal trainers both use something she calls morally loaded language to refer to their respective preoccupations, but that they didn't use this language to speak to each other. In her book, as she says in the introduction, she, it's her effort to bring those disparate places and their discourses together to make sense of them as collaborative and correspondent. I'm not a philosopher, not really, kinda, sometimes, maybe, but only in that amateurish kind of way. But I am a teacher of writing and a trainer of dogs and a teacher of dog trainers. And like Vicki Hearn, I am preoccupied with language and correspondences, with what words can do and with what they cannot. Unlike Vicki Hearn, I'm not especially concerned with bridging disparate cultures of schooling although I do sometimes in quieter moments reflect often on how much dog training is like teaching first year English classes, Um, which I suppose begs the question of curricula. But there's a thing about learning how to learn how and a way in which teaching a dog to think, if you think about something like what the guide dog trainers call intelligent disobedience, Right? The dog has to make a decision to override the handler's command to go forward if there is a danger or an obstacle in the path. 
Teaching a dog to think like that is like teaching grammar in the sense that you can't break the rules strategically until you know what they are. My grandmother used to say you can't be truly rude unless you know what good manners are. Otherwise, you're just ignorant. But if you teach a dog to learn how to learn from you, then you don't need special techniques to address things that happen over the course of a lifetime. Like the adding or subtracting of family members, moving to a new house, changing your work schedule. You just teach the dog what you want him to know. There are certain core skills, right? Where do I eat? Where do I sleep? Where do I poop? Those are kind of the same as uh, the core skills we talk about in the writing classroom. Who is the audience? What do they need to know? And what do I want to have happen as a result of coming to words. John Swales, who is, I guess, a philosopher, language theorist, has observed that one of the most dangerous notions in writing instruction has been the metaphor of remediation. The notion that the only thing we writing instructors have to offer is more instruction about that which should already have been learned. Does that sound like expectations people have for their dogs as well? I suppose you could say that in writing instruction, the predominant psychological approach to these problems has been remediation, right? Remedial technique in the form of behavior modification. See the overlap with dog training? By behavior modification involving the systematic application of the laws of behavior, principles of learning, and the individualized modification of contingencies to reduce and, it is hoped, eliminate undesirable behavior. Behavior modification techniques are widely practiced by truly professional dog trainers. They are known to a lesser degree by folks who don't train dogs, maybe we could say who are veterinarians even, but the, the techniques that are described in textbooks and incorporated in core competencies of the limited and provisional coursework that these folks might get mm, may not turn out to be helpful. Because when owners lack the time, the space, and the practical expertise necessary to behavior modification... What emerges from that is the Specialized Behavior Management Unit, also known, you may know, as the Obedience School, right? In this Specialized Behavior Management Unit, a dog with behavior problems is grouped with other dogs who may exhibit behavior problems in a specialized environment. And I have to say as an aside when I read stuff like this, as I share it with you, I think about... Um, Oh my goodness, what's the movie with Jack Nicholson? You know which one I'm talking about. I'll think of it and I'll share it in a minute. The dog may, metaphorically anyway, leave that environment and return to the community only after the behavior problems are eliminated. This model, and I'll borrow some language from our language theorist, of the diachronic dog who goes to synchronic doggy school 
assumes that homogenous groupings of people with problem dogs are appropriate and constructive settings for both reduction in those behaviors and the acquisition of positive alternative behaviors. It also assumes that successful adjustment to special behavior management environment facilitates successful adjustment to the original or future community environment like the park or the examination room in a veterinary clinic. It didn't work so well in one flew over the cuckoo's nest, right? You knew I'd remember. You were remembering and shouting it, shouting the title at me as I was talking. <laughs> oh, and we see that uh, dogs go to doggy school and don't always make the transition into those new environments so we can think about um, a little bit about why that might be. Some of it uh, has to do with the skills and the talent and the expertise of the instructor themselves. And I confess there that I'm not so much thinking of beginners as I am of professional trainers, those who would stand before a room of dog owners very much like themselves and profess or instruct in exchange for money. I recognize that my affection for the abstract, sorry you guys, is not always shared uh, by other dog trainers, but expertise isn't really about intellect anyway. Um... According to certain educational reformers, expertise is not a place, as in you've arrived there. Rather, it's a process. Because there are experts who have little formal education. There are experts who hold no licenses or have little social power. There are youthful experts. There are experts who have no use for modern technologies and experts whose main strength is in going beyond band-aid solutions and tackling issues in all their complexity. Experience is not the same as expertise. I would submit to you that experience becomes expertise when you can make it genuinely useful to someone else. So I'll leave you with that for a minute. Slide over to tell a little story. Many, many, many years ago, my, one of my sisters worked as a nanny for a local family with seven children. And that family had a neighbor who bred Great Danes and exhibited those dogs in the AKC confirmation rings. One very early summer morning, as my sister arrived to work, the children's mother was leaving for an appointment and the kids were standing with my sister and their mother outside on the patio deck. Um, and there were two younger kids, ages six and eight. Down the street and around the corner comes a 1970s station wagon with a dog trotting alongside. A big Great Dane trotting alongside. Mrs. Baker, the owner of that dog, was at the wheel, her left hand holding the leash attached to her big blue male champion Great Dane who was getting some morning road work in. He was tall enough that his head was even with the car window. The six-year-old gasped and tagged on his mother's sleeve. Look, Mom, that lady is blind. We still tell that joke in our family, right? That misunderstanding. 
But let's go back to my elaboration on the notion of possessing a training philosophy as a consideration of the hidden knowledge of experts or the way formal and f informal knowledge interact. Right? The um, importance of formal knowledge and its relationship to informal knowledge is most obvious when it fails to happen. So for most of us as adults, the roundness of the earth has become a part of our informal knowledge. It's not just something we accept as true. It's part of the way we picture events, such as the changing of the seasons, or airline travel from North America to Australia or Japan. But for very young school children, this is not the case. If you ask them, they will tell you the world is round, but they have learned that as formal knowledge. If you get them talking or drawing pictures of what they think the world is really like, it might be that the image that shapes their thought is an image based on their experience. Right? Your experience when you're a kid of walking on the earth, particularly if you grew up out here in the big square states in the middle, is a, uh, an experience of flatness, right? <laughs> They may draw a round circle with a platform on the top. And to reconcile that image with their formal knowledge, things they've been taught in school, they may create incomplete theories like two worlds or the earth as a hollow globe, maybe even with their platform inside it. What does this have to do with life with dogs or training dogs? I see that precise kind of incomplete connection of formal and informal knowledge among certain hobby trainers or instructors not just here but regionally even nationally since social media gives us access to that they reconcile methods or techniques that they've read about with a kind of limited, provisional, nostalgic, or unexamined experience. The dog we had as a kid or the last dog we had and come up with a kind of band-aid solution for dog owners in their classes. If I were a language philosopher, I might say that without an episteme, they're making it up as they go along. They're a certain kind of pet owner with a clipboard, and I don't mean to be dismissive so much as I have in mind a kind of category for the way some people think about such things. For example, I had a call a few weeks ago from a woman who wanted to know why her 18-month-old boxer is attaching dogs, attacking dogs at the dog park. The dog has had zero formal training. It doesn't get to go for walks. It lives in the house managed completely away from the rest of the family. In other words, untrained, under-socialized, and completely untrustworthy. The only outing this boxer ever gets, and it started at four months old, is a daily trip to the dog park because, in the owner's own words, dogs need room to run. She asked me again, why? Why, why do you think my boxer is attaching, attacking other dogs in the park all of a sudden and quote after all this time with no problems and 
my thought, to paraphrase other trainers I respect, was simply because she can, because she's allowed to. But the owner didn't wait that long before answering her own question. The only thing that's changed, she said to me, is that the weather's getting cold, and that's why Sophie is attacking other dogs, three of whom who have had to have emergency veterinary care. She's attacking other dogs because she's cold. Later that day, I called my veterinary clinic who referred me the, cl- the clinic that referred me to inquire about the client, I told the office manager to get a pen. Get a pen. I, w- I want to announce a new medical breakthrough, and I want you to write it down. We'll call it temperature-induced pathological interspecies aggression. Now, do I get to charge what the behaviorist charges, having earned it with my diagnosis, my explanation? Because Vicki Hearn once wrote that the psychologist has earned their fee if they come up with a diagnosis of the biting then, presumably because the triumph of science is explanation. The dog trainer, on the other hand, must take the story that he or she is handed and change it, actually do something about the bite, which is why dog training is more of a literary than a scientific discipline. But maybe the problem isn't philosophical at all, as we're getting philosophical on this Wednesday. Maybe that collection of superstitions, unexamined beliefs, nostalgia and sentimentality, hit and miss experiences, overexposure to dogs in media and television, just means that some trainers are telling the wrong stories. And in the retelling, they mistake sequence for cause and effect, embrace ridiculous methods in the moment, and abandon valid approaches when they don't work on the very first rehearsal. It's having a philosophy or a coherent structured paradigm or a rubric or an algorithm about how dogs learn and how they don't that is the framework that allows for the selection of certain methods or approaches to training and behavior modification. Most pet owners don't have a philosophy, even if the pet owner has the name instructor and a clipboard in their hand. They may be exactly the person who has a collection of superstitions, unexamined beliefs, nostalgia and sentimentality, hit and miss experiences, overexposure to dogs in media and television. Consequently, they may mistake sequence for cause and effect. The dog bites because she is cold. They may embrace ridiculous methods in the moment or abandon valid approaches when they don't work the very first rehearsal. That kind of incoherence of philosophy interferes with their leadership skills, where the, at least where the dog is concerned, precisely because it is incoherent. Ever work for that boss? Take a class from that teacher? We all have, I think, the one who doesn't really tell you what the expectations are. They just make sure you get in trouble when you guess wrong. Because I see some of that, some absence of that basic learning philosophy as it applies to dogs among members of certain dog clubs or trainers who set up fancy websites, but they have no coherent 
frame over which to stretch their approach. No fundamental or systematic way to examine and consider methods, and they attend seminars and seminars and seminars or read books and then superstitiously cherry-pick different techniques as presented by different kinds of trainers, resulting in an even more wild and multidimensionally incoherent hodgepodge of methods and techniques that further confuse the dog and confound that training relationship. So much for leadership. You know, in all my years as a trainer and class instructor, I've encountered a lot of dissatisfied customers. People have gone to previous trainers that were training extremists. And those were folks, trainers, who were either very, very much on the, quote, purely positive side of dog training, known in the vernacular as cookie pushers, or uh, some who were very, very old school, uh, maybe heel, jerk, jerk kind of thing. Generally, the dogs and owners who worked with the cookie pusher trainers have poor leash skills, are wedded to their clicker, their harness, or one of those head collars, and they make lots of excuses for the dog lunging and jumping, etc. In general, they're overly concerned with the dog's feelings, tend to overanalyze why the dog is doing something, and expect the equipment to do all the work. The dog owners from the very, very traditional jerk and pull trainers tend to be wedded to the choke chain or the pinch collar or the e-collar. They have poor leash handling skills. It's tight all the time and they use lots of ineffective nagging jerks on the collar while making lots of excuses for the dog jumping, lunging, etc. In general, they tend to ignore the dog. They're prone to chanting commands while simultaneously issuing collar corrections and they expect the equipment to do all the work. So I don't know if it's the trainer's fault, the methodology's fault, or that some folks just don't get it. But consequently, I've come to think there are two kinds of trainers, and I don't mean positive or negative. One type believes the dog will never do obedience exercises at all, let alone do them happily, unless he's given an unrelated reason to do them. The reason can be getting something good like food or the reason can be the avoidance of the correction or discomfort but the premise is exactly the same other trainers have the expectation that the activities themselves and the shared experience of doing them with a person can be interesting and exciting to the dog and the task of that trainer is to figure out a way to communicate that possibility to the dog and bring out his latent desire to do things with you there might be food involved there might be physical or non-physical corrections involved, but the underlying reason for using them is quite different. So there's our uh, Wednesday afternoon foray into a little bit of, what do we call it when we bring it together, uh, disparate things that in my brain are connected all the time the teaching of writing and language, the absence or the, the, abs the, I guess what I say is you don't need language to train a dog. Um, but here we are as humans believing language is magic. We think language does a good job of doing things that it can't even do really very well. I mean, we use it to build government. There's a, um, 
social science experiment if there ever was one, right? Oh, my goodness. So you get a little bit of Vicki Hearn, a little bit of Ludwig Wittgenstein, um, and a couple other obscure references, right? One flew over the cuckoo's nest, all rolled into a 25-minute conversation about behavior modification. Who does it? Where do they do it? How do they do it? Why do they do it? And what are the outcomes supposed to look like? Do they help us make successful transitions from one teaching environment into another real-life application? Or are you thinking, as so many of the folks who call me do, but he's perfect at home, right? Therein lies the challenge for all of us. And I'm right there with you. My dogs don't come out of the box, fully formed, no assembly required. I I don't know. Maybe the robot dogs do, but uh, who wants one of those, right? I prefer the living, breathing kind, the ones that make muddy footprints on the floor and bark out the window, right? Okay, you guys. That brings us to the end of this particular set of musings on these more linguistic and philosophical perspectives. Um, Shall we continue into next week? Maybe you will have to come back and join us and see. See where it goes. In the meantime, don't go anywhere. Stick around. The celebration is coming up. And we're always happy when you're hanging out with us here spending a little time with us on KZUM and KZUM HD the coolest radio station in the world thanks as always appreciate you